0: You're listening to The Justice Gap Podcast with me, Callum McRae. In this week's episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Harriet Wistrich. Harriet is a human rights lawyer and the founder and director of the Centre for Women's Justice. In late January this year, the End Violence Against Women Coalition brought a judicial review against the CPS – alleging that changes around rape prosecution policy had led to a, quote, catastrophic collapse in the number of rape cases being charged. A decision from the Court of Appeal is expected next week, so without further ado, I'll hand it over to Harriet to explain further what the allegations levelled at the CPS were and why they felt it necessary to bring the judicial review in the first place.
1: My name is Harriet Wistrich. I'm a solicitor and I'm the director of the Centre for Women's Justice. The Centre for Women's Justice was set up five years ago. So it's a legal charity and its aim is to hold the state to account around violence against women and girls and to challenge discrimination within the criminal justice system.
0: So in, in January, the End Violence Against Women Coalition judicially reviewed the Crown Prosecution Service. Can you tell me what it was you were arguing in that case?
1: Yeah, so the case that, so we represented the Violence Against Women's Coalition. We had seen over the last few years some dramatic decline in the prosecution of rape. So a huge sort of Fall in numbers of rape prosecutions
0: from sort of 2017 onwards, or 2016. Can I can I just j- j- what kind of numbers are you? What kind of levels are you talking?
1: So the number of cases reported, which result in charge, has always been really really low. So there is a big dropout rate. You're looking at figures that say around 55 or 60 thousand cases a year reported, and less than one and a half thousand. Are prosecuted, and that figure has fallen from about three and a half to four thousand per year. So more than halved, I suppose, in terms of volume. And that means two and a half thousand cases that might have otherwise been prosecuted not being prosecuted.
0: To be to be completely clear, is it is it that you're arguing that the conviction rate has decreased?
1: Well, it's it's actually um, to be precise, it's not the conviction rate actually the conviction rate has gone up so the number of cases actually prosecuted resulting in a conviction has increased and this is relevant to why we think the prosecution volume has fallen because what what's happened is you've taken weaker cases out of the system so only prosecuting the really strong cases and and rape is a notoriously difficult crime to prosecute because it usually just happens between two people and if if the defense is consent then it's often down to one person's word against another and in cases where given the threshold for for bringing a, a reasonable prospects of conviction it has to be a strong evidence and 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 that's quite often difficult to find and more difficult because of a whole sort of series of other things to do with rape. And the case that we brought against the Crown Prosecution Service was also based on a whistleblower from within the CPS who had told us about what seemed to be a deliberate change in their approach, which had then led to this fall in prosecutions. And, and part of that was about increasing the conviction rate, as he said. So in order to increase the conviction rate, they took out so-called weaker cases. So they only prosecute... The really, really, really strong cases to get a better result.
0: And, and you say, and you say these so-called so for, for a reason, right? What well, these aren't in your eyes, a lot of these aren't weak cases.
1: No, no. I mean, I think from the cases we've seen, we've seen a lot of cases. Put it this way, where the evidence seems pretty compelling, and the CPS have decided to to drop the case. There will be cases that are very difficult, and we recognise that. But a lot of the cases, and particularly if you look at the change from, say, 4000 per year to 1500 the cases that are, are less prosecuted now are, are ones that are going to be pretty strong on evidence but may have challenges which, which you can get round. I, I think cases should be taken to the jury if there is enough evidence there, and we think that the, the test has changed. So the, the basis of our case was that the CPS had introduced something called the merits-based approach, which was um, designed really to ensure that when prosecutors considered the evidential test in the Code for Crown Prosecutors, and that, that test is, is there a reasonable prospect of conviction? The way in which you reach that conclusion is not by thinking, well, would a jury be likely to convict? Because we know that juries have all sorts of prejudices, if you start from that point of view, you're already kind of thinking, oh, this is a case where she was dressed sexually provocatively, or this is a case where she drunk a lot or whatever, and juries hate that, uh, or this is a case where the, the alleged suspect is a good looking young man, so why would you rape? you know, those kind of myths and stereotypes. What we're saying is that they, they don't contend that they remove the merits-based of, approach. That was brought in after a, a legal case, but also it, it, by an earlier attempt to sort of really improve the approach to the prosecution of sexual offences. And it did lead back in 2010, 2011 to an increase in prosecutions. And then there has been a sort of pulling back from that. So that, that's sort of the basis of our challenge that they, that they changed their approach without consulting, without publishing, that they were doing that. CPS deny <laughs> that they did this. Uh, Although they accept that they removed the merits-based approach, but they say they did that simply because it was causing a lot of confusion. The test has always been the same, they say. It's the code test. And the merits-based approach is just a a kind of guidance on how how you apply the objective
0: test. And what was it that the whistleblower said was happening?
1: So the whistleblower said that towards the end of 2016, the head of legal services, who's a guy called, or was a guy called Gregor McGill, and the principal legal advisor to the DPP, Neil Moore. So, this was when Alison Saunders was still DPP. Started a series of roadshows where they went round talking to all the different specialist prosecutors, Rasso prosecutors. So, those are ones that specialize in rape and serious sexual offenses and said to them, you know, kind of gave them a pep talk, which, which was effectively, let's take weaker cases out of the system, let's just adjust our approach slightly. It was described, I think the language used was a touch on the tiller, just to adjust our approach a bit. But th- that by delivering that message, it led to a, a more risk-averse approach, and also one where there was a risk of it of moving from the merits-based approach to the bookmakers approach which is like what are the odds of getting a a conviction in this case thinking about what juries are likely to say you know they deny that but what they don't deny because it's true is that they did remove the merits-based approach but they say that that was just to avoid confusion rather than an actual change in their approach so that's where the the kind of main fight of in the case or the main issue in the case was around
0: why why is it so important that that we still bring these cases that they perceive as perhaps weaker
1: it's you know the, the, the the situation we have at the moment is near decriminalization of rape because if so few reported rapes are prosecuted then basically a lot of rapists are getting away with it And we know that a lot of serial rapists are getting away with it. And rapists who, for example, use drugs to intoxicate their victims before sexually assaulting them are able to get away with it because it's very difficult to prove it. You know, if you haven't got done a test immediately to show a particular presence of a drug, then, you know, the, the victim won't remember enough about it to be able to be the other person's word against the other if you like so it, it's important to really really try to bring cases and what's quite interesting is that one of the things we do at the centre is we we've been trying to assist with there is a victim's right review scheme so if you're told that the cps are not going to charge you can bring a victim's right review to challenge it and in a few cases we've brought A decision not to charge has been reversed and has ended up with the offender pleading guilty. You know, there are cases which they're being, what we say is that they've been risk averse and that these are cases where even even on the very difficult high threshold test, they, they should have been brought and they're not being brought. Some of the decisions we've seen are kind of like gobsmacking, really.
0: Can you can you speak about any of any of those just as examples?
1: Yeah, I mean, we put together a dossier of cases. One of one of the women who have spoken up quite a bit was basically held at knife point. I think at one stage she was held hostage in her own flat, and 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 the guy was had had been impersonating a police officer. I think they 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 dated, but he said he was a police officer. It turned out he wasn't. This was about to hit the trial, and and then just a few days before trial, the CPS suddenly decided they weren't going to prosecute and drop the charges. And that's because they looked at some disclosure and saw that she'd... During the weekend that she'd been sort of held hostage, she'd been sending some messages which seemed to be inconsistent with the idea that she must have been held hostage. I mean, her explanation, which she wasn't given an opportunity to give was that you know she was she was frightened of him and so was therefore trying to be normal and that was quite a shocking case.
0: That hits me as such a, a thing a jury should be considering that 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 kind of evidence right?
1: That, that, that's exactly our point you know where where there are credibility issues I mean obviously depending on how major they are I mean if there there are some cases that are really really undermining but but there are there are some cases which are just really gobsmacking.
0: I, I mean, something something really hit me when I was when I was doing some reading before speaking to you, and it's kind of true of a lot of other areas of the criminal justice system. It's this kind of preemptive approach. So the CPS are preempting that the jury won't won't find the defendant guilty, and that means they're they're perhaps not pursuing cases, and therefore the police then preempt. Perhaps what the CPS's decisions are going to be, and then that kind of leads back to the victim, who will preempt that nothing's going to be done about it. And I want to know about what what the damage that kind of attitude and that trickle down has on on the victim and the process. I suppose.
1: I mean, it's a nightmare, really, if you're uh, if you've been raped to have to go through criminal justice process. I mean, it's very traumatising, you're going to have to repeat your account again and again, you're going to have to be forensically examined if, if, if you report straight away, which is a very intrusive process after a deeply violating experience. You may have to provide all sorts of deeply personal records. You know, the victim often feels like they're the one that is on trial in, in rape. And to go through all that, and it's, a, it's surprising how many women are prepared to go through that. But obviously, they go through it. You know, many of them, I, I think, go through it because they can see that this bloke is going to offend again if they don't hold him accountable. So to go through that and so, and then there's huge delays. You know some of the cases we've dealt with have gone on for three years or more. Uh, and, and then you know at the very last minute sometimes the case to be dropped, what would make you ever want to go through that process again? There are many, many women that don't report. It's estimated that probably about fifteen percent of of actual rapes are reported you know that's why we say there is virtual decriminalization
0: of rape. I do want to ask um with your hat on also as a as a defense lawyer how do you in your own mind kind of balance the interests of of the complainant and a defendant in a case that is perhaps difficult to prosecute one of the, one of the arguably weaker cases that they're saying are, are, have been dropped how how do you balance the interests of both of those?
1: Well, one of the issues that, you know, arises quite often is around the issue of disclosure. And from a defence solicitor point of view, we've also seen in the past that defendants haven't been provided with disclosure and have actually led to miscarriages of justice sometimes. So I recognise that, you know, there has to be relevant disclosure one of the issues is that the disclosure in rape has gone much too too far and has involved kind of fishing expeditions about anything to do with a person's past that they might then be able to bring in to kind of cast aspersions on, on an individual or bringing previous sexual history through the back door. So rape, is a, I think, is a very particular area because of the, the kind of myths, uh, you know, or the set previous sexual history, which is which is now supposed to be prevented from being questioned about, except for limited circumstances, because, you know, otherwise women were being tried because they were like a loose woman and therefore they must have been asking for it. So, I mean, giving rights, proper proper rights to defendants doesn't mean giving them free reign to destroy a victim's character. You have to do what, what is what is a fair balance, really.
0: And, and you And you think you can do that, it's just not being done at the moment?
1: Well, I, I yeah, I mean, I think I, I think it's just that the balance has is, is has gone too far against victims.
0: I, I I did want to ask, I mean, essentially, at the core of what you're arguing, you would like to see more men convicted and and sent to sent to prison for for rape. There's a lot of people who would argue that I mean, there's a there's a kind of anti-carceral movement. Uh, what would you say, there's a, a big divergence of opinion in the, in the two movements, what would you say to those people who say prison isn't the only route out of this, policing isn't the only route out of this?
1: Um, well, look, I mean, I, I, um, you know, I know prisons are pretty terrible places and uh, there are a hell of a lot of people in prison who shouldn't be in prison, but rape is a very serious offence. It basically imprisons women uh, you know, in prisons, many many women, in the sense that they do they don't feel they have their liberty, if they fear being able to engage in the world in a free way. I mean, women are women are more limited because of of a rape culture in what they can do. But importantly, you know, there there are certain crimes that do do cause huge long term. You know, and victims of rape can suffer a lifetime of damages, and, they, and many women take their own lives. It has to be that those men have to be held accountable, and you know, and some rapists, particularly serial rapists like War Boys or, or whoever, you know, are dangerous. And you know, if they're not held accountable, you know, as in the War Boys case, he went on to rape well, we know of you know, well over 100 women, um, because, because there was no effective policing of him. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I think. Decarceration is appropriate in relation to, you know, or looking at alternative schemes for for crimes that arise, you know, because of people's poor circumstances. Where where somebody is abusing their power to cause huge damage to individuals, then they should be locked up or punished and and also kept away from, um, you know, if they're a danger, kept away for, for you know an appropriate period and that should send a message also that that, that it's it's not right you know it's not right to rape
0: <laughs> you told me that you expect the decision from the court of appeal next week uh, whether whether successful or not what are you hoping will come from this judicial review
1: well i mean i think in some ways we've we've already achieved a lot by bringing the judicial review I think the publicity around it, the, 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 the fact that so many people have supported us. I mean, we raised over £100,000 on crowd justice so we could bring the case. Yeah, and that was mainly from just people putting in 10, 15, 20 quid each. So, you know, there's huge demand. I mean, all the people, the rape crisis organisations across the country, hugely grateful for us for actually just holding the CPS publicly to account. And I think the CPS have, have publicly been on the back foot around it. And most importantly, they, they have actually now introduced a whole load of new guidance to try and improve their practice. So, I, I mean, we're, we, we still, you know, they were trying to say, look, we've, we've improved now. So there's no need for you to take, take this challenge. But we're saying, well, there are a whole series of issues about the way in which you did that which you don't acknowledge, and, and partly it's about one of the, one of the grounds of challenges about consultation, you know, if you're going to change your approach, then you, 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 know, you should be under a duty to consult around it and to publish your policy. So there are still things that were, were up for grabs that we wanted to bring, but, I mean, I think we've kind of achieved an outcome already, but obviously we would like the court to recognise that, that something went wrong here because that would really be such an important precedent and it would send such a strong message that hopefully it won't happen again, that this sort of thing could result in such a substantial change.
0: You've been listening to the Justice Gap podcast. This episode was produced by me, Callum McRae. The theme music was made by Oscar Ralph. Please support us by spreading the word, subscribing and rating the podcast if your platform allows it.